Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring you the guest speaker talks from the 2018 East End Conference, held at the Astronomer Pub on Middlesex Street, in the heart of the East End of London, on the 3rd and 4th of November 2018. The first speaker was Louis Burke, a photographer whose work has been published in several books, including Secret Whitechapel, Whitechapel in 50 Buildings and East End Jewish Cemeteries. His talk was entitled Echoes of the East End Jewish Community. And uh, his most recent work is East End Jewish Cemeteries, and they result of an exclusive five-year project, and that will be published by Amberley Books, in, uh, was published, sorry, by Amberley Books in 2017. He's currently working on his fourth book, which will be published by Mango Books. Are they here? Are they here? Uh, and that will be published in 2019 by Mango Books. He's going to talk to us on echoes of the uh, East End Jewish community. Can we please have a big welcome and a round of applause for Louis Berg. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, I'm a bit aware that this is uh, a very visual uh, presentation, so I'm going to stand back a bit. Um, hopefully you can see the screen. If you can't, you know, please tell me to get out of the way. I'm happy to do that. Um, I was fascinated reading the um, conference uh, booklet just now that we're actually in the building of the, the old Jewish Board of Guardians, which is quite uh, significant. Um, and I have to say, this doesn't, um, I hope this doesn't diminish my credibility. I was unaware of that until I read the agenda. <laughs> um, as, um, just check the technology. Yes, here we go. Um, as uh, Richard said, uh, I'm a photographer. Predominantly, I'm not a historian. Um, I was very fortunate, due to a career change, I ended up working in Whitechapel for about 13 years as a secondary school teacher, which is one of the reasons why I don't really need to rely on this, because I can actually stun a student at 50 yards. <laughs> um, but it gave me this incredible opportunity to use my time to photograph in and around Whitechapel, Spitalfields, Marlen, Stanley Green. Uh, and in fact, before I left today, I had a quick check of my uh, library stock, uh, my, uh, my asset library at home. I have about 20,000 photographs that I've taken over the last 13 years. Now, um, that's sort of a wide range of subjects. And indeed, when I was uh, talking to Adam about um, a subject for today's conference, I said to him, by the way, I just happen to have over the years taken quite a few photographs which relate to the Jewish community. Um, and it might be interesting just to show those. It's something that I haven't actually um, shown to other people before, so I thought that's what I would do. Now, um, a lot of people, uh, the Jewish community, going back to the beginnings, um, reappeared in the United Kingdom in the middle uh, 17th century. Um, there's some discussion that Oliver Cromwell invited them back to the UK, that's debatable, but they did start to arrive. And the earliest beginnings really, uh, or the earliest artifacts in the area are actually the cemeteries, um, which may sound a bit macabre, but um, it's, it's actually true. Um, and the oldest cemetery in the UK of the returned um, uh, Jewish population, but prior to that, there was a cemetery actually in Moorgate, uh, the only one in the UK uh, that was, was founded in the 12th century. But this was in the 
um, 17th century. And this is the doorway to the cemetery um, at, uh, which is now in the grounds of Queen Mary University um, and was founded in 1657. Now, uh, the Civil War finishes in 1651, so you can see that the Jewish population really did uh, appear at about that time in, in British history. I suspect because they brought with them two things. I mean, Jewish population in the UK come, uh, comes here for two reasons. One's, one is, in the 19th century, largely due to persecution. But prior to that, it's because of trade. And, you know, UK, the UK in the 17th century was beginning to be an important trading nation. And Jews, particularly from uh, the continent around Amsterdam, brought with them trading links, which were quite valuable, and also commodities that the uh, growing middle class in the UK, uh, in Britain at that time, wanted to buy. Uh, but this cemetery itself is actually um, for, it was actually founded by the Spanish and Portuguese Jews, who came, as the name said, suggests, from um, Spain and Portugal, um, and arrived here. Uh, in time to, to found this. This is the Velo Cemetery, um, founded in uh, 1657. It's owned currently by Bibis Mark Synagogue. Um, Bibis Mark is around the corner from us, actually, and very close, <coughs> as it happens, it, it almost backs onto uh, Mitre Square, which was all of us familiar with. Um, the reason why the stones are lying down is not because they're old, it's actually um, the burial practice of the Spanish and Portuguese community that their headstones lie flat. The first three lines here are actually the oldest uh, graves uh, in the cemetery. Uh, but within a generation, the population had expanded quite a lot. And uh, by 1684, uh, the plot of land uh, there actually expanded further. And um, one of the artifacts that was left behind is this um, memorial plaque, which is dated 1684, which must be actually one of the oldest, one of the one of the oldest artifacts in Marlin Whitechapel, uh, still in existence. There may be a, na a street name I've seen, there's of course the building on Stepney Green, 37, but this is 1684. And it basically just commemorates that the community had grown, they needed, as the growing community would do, uh, more land for the people who had died. One of the, one of the most um, Poignant graves. This one was actually uh, refurbished a little bit, uh, I think, in the 19th century. But it, it tells the story to some extent of the um, Spanish and Portuguese community. It says, Here lies buried Don Isaac Lindo, a gentleman of Campo Mayor, Spain, who, being driven from his native land because of his faith, found about the year 1663 a new home in the Congregation of London. So, uh, somewhat poignant, but an interesting historical impact <coughs> in that particular cemetery. Uh, I should explain that uh, the Jews, when they, they leave Palestine in, in, in around about the end of the first, beginning of the second century, uh, divert into two streams. Some of them went north into Europe, some of them went south uh, into uh, what were predominantly Arabic lands at, at that time, and in fact went as far as Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Tunis, and so on and so forth, and through that route ended up in Spain and Portugal. And just behind all, uh, just behind um, the Velo Cemetery, uh, which is close to Marlin Road, is the second old cemetery, which is the um, cemetery of Albany Road, owned by the Ashkenazi, or the European community, um, and established in 1697, closed in 1853. Um, Alderney Road, if you uh, is 
actually very difficult to get into. It's, it's almost impossible to get into. And I, it's not a, the artifacts that are left are not particularly interesting from a photographic point of view. They're very interesting from a historical point of view. For example, the very first chief rabbi, the office of chief rabbi, uh, the very first chief rabbi in um, in the UK is buried there, as indeed are a succession of chief rabbis from then onwards, uh, who came from the Ashkenazi community. Um, th these two gravestones in particular emphasise the uh, Dutch influence. These are very continental looking headstones. Uh, they're not the sort of traditional English curved top, they have these uh, scrolls on top of them, which, is, which um, emphasises the origins of the, the community that established this particular cemetery. Um, the third cemetery, and this is the one in which I spent um, five years uh, photographing, um, I, I, I hate to I am not historically documenting, documenting it, but as a landscape photographer, I was particularly interested in this one. This is Brady Street, which was founded, uh, the second National <coughs> Arts Cemetery, and was founded in uh, 1858. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very beautiful cemetery uh, in some ways because um, it's actually a natural forest embedded in Whitechapel. It's one of the reasons I, I was originally attracted to photograph here. I didn't think I was going to be able to photograph it, and then I contacted the United Synagogue who owned it, and they were actually very open to the idea that somebody would go in and photograph. I was only going to photograph for a year, but I ended up photographing for five years, um, because for the first two years there was no snow in the winter of this country. It was about 2010, 2011, and I wanted to capture smoke snow on the ground in the cemetery. So I kept on photographing. It's significant for the Jewish community because between this period, 1768 and 1851, uh, the Jewish community really does establish itself and integrate into British society. For example, in 1855, you get, uh, I think it's 1855, uh, you get the first Jewish Lord Mayor of London, Solomon's. Now, you know, that's an event which is very similar, if you think about it, to Salih Khan becoming um, uh, the, the Mayor of London in, in our generation. So it's very important. So it, it emphasizes how Jews had become accepted in society and had uh, integrated with British uh, society. The first Jewish uh, MP, Lionel Rothschild, was elected in 1858. <coughs> um, these are the two most famous burials in the cemetery. This is uh, 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 Nathan Mayer and Hannah Rothschild, who were the progenitors of the uh, Rothschild banking empire. Uh, he, was, uh, he, um, he was actually a very popular member of British society. In fact, on his death, uh, apparently his funeral cortege was composed of 76 carriages that stretch pretty much all the way from Piccadilly to, to his death. Um, but in fact, it's some of the more, um, more uh, everyday uh, memorials which are interesting to us, because I mean, this is Philip Harris, who obviously a very anglicised name, um, ship owner of Chapel. Um, very, very interesting to find um, uh, headstones that actually have people's professions embedded in them. Uh, this is, this generally raises a, a little bit of a lot of people to this because, of course, the first thing that goes through their mind is Spock and uh, Star Trek, if you're tricky like me. But um, Leonard Nimoy actually would, came from a very orthodox Russian Jewish family, and he remembered uh, the symbols used by uh, rabbis during the blessing of the congregation. They make a symbol like this, um, which, which signifies the letter Shin in the Hebrew uh, alphabet, which is one of the letters 
of the names of God. There are no names of God, but it's one of them. Um, and this probably signifies that this person wasn't actually a rabbi, but was a member of the tribe of, um, of Cohen, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and this has absolutely no historical uh, whatever, but everybody likes a fox. And uh, I was very fortunate on that particular day when I was in cemetery. Um, I think it's a yearling, actually. I know quite a bit about foxes that I photograph them quite regularly. Um, and uh, I think it's a female as well. She, she uh, certainly hung around, I think probably hoping for some food. So the earliest artifacts are these cemeteries. Um, and uh, some, um, actually, none of those three are open to the general public. If you want to visit them, you can make arrangements and they will be open. And occasionally, I do do, I, I, I actually do photographic tours of my chat when I take photographers around and help them take photographs and explain technique and things like that. And occasionally, I take them into the cemetery as well if you're interested in doing that at some point. Details are on the website. So there are also signs. In my photography, there are obvious signs of the Jewish community. One of them uh, is, is slightly hidden. Some people have seen this. I don't know if some of the tour guides here are aware of this one. But this is the water collector on the um, uh, school, uh, uh, Christchurch Primary School in Brick Lane. And I point this out to people whenever I pass by, because I must admit, I didn't notice it for years until I actually came across a reference to it. Um, and um, you can see the Star of David on there. That's uh, uh, the uh, Jewish symbol originated from about the 12th century, uh, which signifies um, the Jewish faith. And uh, there are a lot of stories about this. Um, at the time, this water collector was put up in 1874 when the school was opened. Um, there was a very large Jewish population. In fact, probably most of the children going to that school would have been Jewish. And there's some stories that maybe the, the teachers wanted to make them feel uh, at home. I debated this with uh, uh, a pretty good authority on this, a guy called uh, Rabbi Lawrence Regal, who sadly died a few years ago. And he said, no, Louis, it's just a coincidence. They put all sorts of things on these water collectors. It probably has no significance whatsoever. But it's still an interesting sign. Um, this is another sign. Um, <coughs> probably a lot of people know where this is. This is the alleyway that leads up to Gunport Street um, on, on uh, Whitechapel. High Street, um, and this, this uh, uh, Star of David and, and uh, uh, sculpture, which is high up on the wall. What a lot of people don't know is that this was the um, this was the premises of the Jewish Daily Post, the only um, daily English newspaper, which was which uh, opened in 1926 and closed in 1935. I'm actually quite impressed that this has actually remained on the wall uh, without being taken off. Um, since that date, actually. Um, the, um, it's actually quite a significant piece of art. It's by a, um, an artist called Arthur Zeich, um, who was uh, a Polish Jewish artist uh, who uh, ended up in the UK and then in the US. And Zeich's work is worth tracking down. He actually became, his, his, his key skill was caricature. And he was actually employed during the uh, Second World War by the US government to draw propaganda cartoons um, of caricatures of various um, enemies that they wanted to use in propaganda. Um, the significant, we've got the Star of David here, we've got the Lions of Judah with their swords, with their scimitars, and then down here we have uh, the candelabras, the menorah, which are um, lit during the festival of Hanukkah. Uh, another sign, this is going all the way over to Stephanie Green, is uh, this is the 
uh, or I work on the um, Stepney Green Jewish School that was uh, established by the um, Adler family in 1863. Stepney Green, you may know, was a very, had a very large Jewish population. I think in some ways uh, it was a bit snobby that people actually, Jews actually were saying, well, I'm leaving Whitechapel and going to Stepney Green, you know, as a step up. Um, and um, the school was founded in 1863 again emphasizing the integration of the Jewish community into society. The Adler family only really wanted pupils who were anglicized. In other words, they didn't want overtly religious um, students. They wanted uh, Jewish students who um, you know, were basically uh, integrated into society. And it discouraged uh, less uh, anglicized uh, types from actually attending. Um, And I'm sure a lot of people have actually seen this. Um, this is the um, uh, the uh, soup kitchen for the Jewish poor building, which uh, um, the soup kitchen for the Jewish poor actually was established in 1854 and had premises elsewhere. Um, and a bit like the Board of Guardians, actually, if you read about it in the um, in the in the in the conference booklet, um, it was one of those institutions founded to uh, support uh, recently arrived. Um, immigrants, Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, they would arrive, they probably would have nowhere to go, uh, many of them would actually not have very much money on them, <coughs> they needed. so it was, it was more than just a soup kitchen, it was a, it was a community centre as well with social health apart from the food. Um, the interesting thing about the, uh, the frontage in Broome Street is, is this beautiful terracotta frontage. Um, I should really have made a note of who the architect is, and I can't remember who it is now. Um, and um, over the door are in fact both the Hebrew calendar date and the um, current era date. So we've got 56, uh, 62, and then 1902. Then above it, they in, they built into, I think it's quite quite nice in the way, they built in a suit to reading with a, with a ladle in it to, to emphasize it's uh, what it did. The kitchen kept working actually until uh, the early 90s. Um, and um, it was uh, owned near the end by Jewish care and then because the Jewish population in Whitechapel really diminished so far that there was no point in actually keeping it open any longer uh, and it closed. But it remains an interesting relic. Um, one, of the, one of the relics which isn't there, but I do have a photograph of it, um, I don't know if people are familiar with Keith Bowler's work and his artwork um, from the um, early 90s. Um, he did a, a series of roundels which he embedded into the pavements around Whitechapel. And um, uh, this one was actually placed outside the, uh, outside the uh, soup kitchen of the Jewish poor. Uh, and uh, the symbolism in it is, the, is that it contains um, an image of the um, hollow bread which is used and then the, the uh, uh, salt spoons and then the, uh, the tureen itself, the, the actual chicken soup. Um, I was very fortunate when I was writing and photographing for Secret Whitechapel, uh, I got in touch with Keith Butler and he actually gave me uh, photographs of the roundels which no longer exist. Uh, there are 13 roundels in existence and seven have just disappeared. This is one of them, unfortunately, which disappeared. But he gave me the, um, the photo, or he allowed me to reproduce the photographs uh, in Secret Whitechapel so that uh, people could actually see the, the, the work extent, uh, in its extant form. Uh, it's a real shame. I'd love to know what happened to that. I suspect it was dug out of the pavement when they repaid and then thrown into a uh, thrown into a skip. Um, this is um, actually Trinity Green um, over the 
church door at Trinity Green, which is uh, in Mile End. It's, um, it's architecture which is attributed to Wren, but in fact was not. Um, it was at the school of Wren. It was probably, it, it reutilized some of Wren's plans, but actually wasn't architected by him. And um, the reason why I'm showing it is that uh, not unusually, you see this in quite a few uh, ecclesiastical premises from about the 17th century onwards, you actually see Hebrew being used as signage um, in, um, uh, in, in architecture. You see something, for example, if you go to Westminster Abbey, there are several tablets that are in Hebrew. Now, I, I think the influence here is that people wanted to emphasize their understanding of classical languages, and of course, with a growing Jewish population, there were now people who could actually teach people who were not Jewish, um, classical Hebrew. <coughs> what they attempted to do here was actually write the word God. Um, as you may know, in, in the Jewish religion, you're not allowed to say the name um, of the word God. And I know now many of you are thinking about the scene in Life of Brian, where <laughs> one of my favorite films. But um, you're not allowed to actually say the word God. So there are ways of writing it where you don't say it. Actually, this is wrong. Um, it's just slightly wrong. Uh, but it, it emphasizes the fact that I think the Jewish community did bring with them um, a, a culture and a civilization that people were interested in, even in the, you know, in the 17th century, and they used some of that knowledge uh, elsewhere. This is, I'm showing this sign because this came about on, um, on Whitechapel Waste, uh, Whitechapel Road, um, a few years back. I was walking <coughs> school one day, and they were refurbishing the, uh, the uh, shops just by the station. They ripped off the uh, the old facades, and, and suddenly this um, this uh, shop name came up, Preslov and Sons, obviously a Jewish name. Um, in fact, I know it. I know it's a Jewish company because I I actually got in contact with the niece of the owners, the last owners of the shop. I wanted to try and take a photograph of her in front of the audience, but she wouldn't come down and do it. Um, and um, in fact, I also know it was replaced because there's a fantastic piece of film with Don McCullough in Whitechapel on YouTube. And as he walks down Whitechapel High Street explaining his photography, it's great, all we're tracking down, he passes by <coughs> and there's a modern <coughs> Breslov sign on it, still selling shoes. But I thought that was kind of interesting, sort of ghost sign that re reappeared. Sadly, now it's, uh, it's been um, completely removed. Um, I want to talk a little bit about observance, Jewish observance, because that's also, uh, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of examples of that. Uh, still around in Whitechapel, even though there isn't a Jewish population there any longer. In fact, there are only really two functional uh, synagogues left in, in Whitechapel. Uh, now, I'm probably going to lose some credibility here, because I have to say, I am a big Ripper Street fan, okay? and I think that they did do some things quite well. And the reason why I took this green um, shot is that it really resonated with me, because this is... Um, I can't inspect read, look out the window. And we can all try and spend the, the entire day trying to work out where this is, but I guarantee you it's very difficult to do. But what caught my attention was this part of the, the uh, collage here with this tiny little synagogue built into the um, premises. That's, that's really an understanding of what uh, the Jewish community was like in the late 19th century, because um, the Jews came over in, in the second wave uh, in the 19th century, escaping persecution, to be, uh, uh, not so much as dealing with migrants, um, but they brought with them uh, skills and, and, uh, and businesses as well. 
But they came sort of in groups from their villages, and they would turn up in their village, and they sometimes they'd bring their rabbi with them. And the first thing they would do is establish a synagogue. And many of these were established in just ordinary, um, ordinary uh, premises. You're probably not going to be able to see this, but this is actually a list of 200 synagogues from um, from one of the uh, uh, reference sites on on uh, on the internet, the uh, Jewish Community and Records uh, website. And the reason why I just chose this page is just in Hanbury Street. We've got one, two, three, four synagogues uh, just along Hanbury Street. Four different congregations. Long street, but still four synagogues. In fact, more synagogues than pubs in this particular case, I suspect. Um, and several in Great Alley Street, and so forth. So there are all these tiny little communities, maybe you know, 100 people, 50 people, 200 people, not, not massive numbers. Um, this is a, a map that uh, shows the distribution of some of those synagogues by the 1920s. And again, you can see you know, quite an agglomeration of these small, um, small community synagogues. Um, some, of you will remember, some of you will recognize this. This is Cheshire Street. Um, and you can still see these synagogue buildings. This was the uh, this was 21 uh, Hare Street at the time. It's now Cheshire Street. And uh, I mean, to emphasize the, the size of the community, this is the United Workmen's and, Vlad, and Vladova Synagogue. Vladova is a small town somewhere in Poland. I actually had to look it up to see, uh, see where it was. From 1901 to 1987, <coughs> so this would have been a group of people who came over to the UK, brought with them their community, and established a, a small synagogue. Obviously, this wasn't built as a synagogue, it's just an ordinary house that had been taken over. <coughs> and I think they made some attempt at the time to sort of pretty it up a little bit, make it look maybe a little bit more temporal than it was. Um, but I used to pass that every single day on the way to work, and always fascinated me. So, uh, this is another example of just a small synagogue built into some uh, pre existing uh, housing premises. This is in Henwick Street. If you've stood outside the private hospital fields, you know, on a, Sunday, on a summer's evening drinking, you'll have looked across the road and seen this. And um, again, there were two communities in here, including the Poltava uh, community, again, a small, uh, small hamlet somewhere in, uh, in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, again, worth emphasizing, just a very small uh, community, very small community. So this one might be familiar, more familiar to people. This is 19 Princelet Street, which is um, the so-called Museum of Immigration now. Um, this has still in its in the back of it, um, <coughs> they actually extended 19 Princeton Street uh, and built a sort of extension that goes out the back, which is a shed. And in fact, the photograph on the left, um, Rex and I were very lucky when we were, again, when we were writing, people were very generous to us when we were writing Secret White Temple. And um, this was donated to us. Um, and uh, it's the inside of 19 Princeton Street uh, from a, a photograph uh, taken in um, 1911 uh, with it decked out for the Festival of Shavuot, which is the Jewish festival, uh, harvest festival. But uh, very unusual to see the inside of that when it was in sound, because unfortunately now most of that nearly all that has been ripped out. Um, this is uh, Sandy's Row. Um, should also say, uh, this is actually an example of a synagogue that was built into a, uh, into a pre-existing chapel. I think it was a Methodist chapel. I mean, there are a number like that. For, we all know, I'm sure we all know about um, uh, Huguenot Chapel in Brick Lane, which was a Huguenot Chapel, then a Methodist church, then a synagogue, and now a mosque. This um, has since um, 
1853 actually being uh, premises of a Jewish organization. It was initially a Hebrew, which is a, a Jewish friendly society, it wasn't a synagogue. And, and Hebrews were, again, they were like the Board of Guardians, they were basically uh, community uh, organizations that provided support. Actually, in this case, the friendly society was there to provide burial rights, so people paid a small amount of money each. Each month, and then when they died, they were assured of a burial in in, um, in a proper Jewish cemetery somewhere. But eventually, it became a synagogue. Um, it was founded by Dutch, uh, again Dutch immigrants. Uh, it became a synagogue. It briefly joined a group of synagogues, but it, uh, it then left. And in fact, it's one of the few independent synagogues in existence. It's the only synagogue still operating, actually, really in the city of London, and it does hold. Um, services every single day. Um, this is the inside. This is our photographs from inside. Um, there's a great film on YouTube called uh, The Tenth Man about trying to raise uh, uh, the tenth man for a minute. You need ten people to hold a Jewish uh, service and they can't find the tenth man. They go out looking for him all up and down the lane. It's got Warren Mitchell, Jonathan Sachs, and Stephen Burkhoff in it. It's about 12 minutes long, but it's really good. And most of it was shot inside Sanders Road. Um, outside on the door is, um, is, uh, is something that harks back to the Dutch origins. This is a uh, mezuzah um, you place on the, on, on the doorways of a Jewish building, uh, according to um, the commandment in Deuteronomy to write the words of God on the gates and doorposts of your house inside these little mezuzah you put on the door. This one is actually made out of Delft pottery, which, as I say, is, uh, goes back to the, to the Dutch origins. Um, this is the so-called Great <coughs> Fieldgate Synagogue. Um, all these synagogues had, all these synagogues seem to try to punch above their weight in terms of their names. They were always great or grand or whatever, even though they were quite small. Um, this, is, this was taken a, a couple of years before it closed, and in fact I was very fortunate that again I was able to get inside um, and photograph um, the synagogue. Um, it's not, it wasn't a particularly luxurious <coughs> interior, and most of the money I suspect had gone into the stained glass windows at the back. Um, now, the, the Great Fieldgate Street Synagogue, or Fieldgate Street Great Synagogue, if you use the proper name, uh, built in 1899. This particular uh, version of it was, in, uh, was rebuilt in 1858. Was slap bang next door um, to the East London Mosque, although the East London Mosque arrived afterwards. Um, the East London Mosque was originally on Commercial Road, and uh, when their premises were compulsorily purchased, um, in the 1970s, they were forced to, well, they weren't forced, they were given land by town habits, which just happened to be next door to the synagogue. Um, and uh, actually, one of the things, the stories I like to tell people, um, a little known fact about the East London Mosque, one of the founding trustees of the East London Mosque was actually Lord Rothschild, actually uh, worked to help establish the, uh, the mosque uh, with uh, the other trustees back in 1911. Um, but it's kind of uh, interesting because, of course, as you all know, if you walk down Fieldgate Street, this is what it looks like today. Um, it's it's grown enormously. Um, the mosque and the synagogue had always had and always had very good relations. When the um, mosque expanded, they actually built skylights into the mosque so that the light would continue to shine into the stained glass window. When you walk through the mosque, 
you actually see these Star of David signs, and I've actually photographed them uh, from, from the mosque site. In fact, um, I went back into, they were very, very kindly, they let me go back into the premises, because the synagogue's now being bought by, um, by the mosque. It's their Zakat Centre, which is their charity centre. Um, but they let me go back inside, and I was able to um, see how they reused the premises and, and change them. You can see they've kept the they've kept the story. Um, the only functioning synagogue right in the heart of Whitechapel is Nelson Street, which doesn't open that often. To be perfectly honest, built in 1923, um, I've never been able to establish it. But I suspect my my father's family probably belonged to it. As he lived around the corner of Commercial Road. Um, it is. If you can get into it, it is quite a beautiful synagogue. And I just want to finish with, and I finish this particular section before I round up, um, uh, with this particular photograph. I'm sure many of you have passed this on Bethnal Green Road, particularly if you now use Shoreditch High Street um, overground station. But this is the, uh, this is again, the Bethnal Green Great Synagogue. Um, it's actually one of the few synagogues that was uh, bombed out during the war and then rebuilt. Given all those synagogues in the area, actually only seven were totally destroyed by the Blitz. One of them, unfortunately, was one of the grandest synagogues in the East End. Um, but that, that, that's by the by. Um, and uh, so they rebuilt it in 1956. Sadly, the community didn't last that much longer. By the 70s, the community had largely left. I think it's now, I think the last time I saw inside it was actually some kind of clothing or, or, or wholesale clothing uh, warehouse. I just want to finish with some slides about what I've seen in terms of the community. You know, we've talked about burial and, and servants and that kind of stuff. And what about the people themselves? And um, this is one of my favourite photographs. It, it generally raises a little bit of a laugh because people see the no dumping sign and then the toilet behind it, <laughs> which I always love. I love. I'm. I know I'm a bit strange as a photographer, but I love these toilets. They're just such a, an example of. Um, grand Edwardian, late Victorian, early Edwardian public hygiene design. They're fantastic. And I've never understood why gentlemen require punctuation at the end of it, not the sign itself. Um, Stephen Burkhoff, uh, I got this story from a leaflet that Tatham has published a few years ago. I've only been able to find it online, I've never been able to get it uh, in person. But Stephen Burkhoff, who's a great son of the East End, and a photographer, actually, a fantastic photographer as well as an actor. Um, he talked about this being the Parliament of Petticoat Lane, and he tells how uh, Jewish street traders obviously follow the call of nature, and then they stand outside and debate the the, um, the goings on of the day, and this would lead to all sorts of arguments and you know back and forth, and eventually would turn into something like Speaker's Corner in uh, in, in Petticoat Lane. There is a very famous expression: two Jews, three opinions. Um, and I can just imagine that uh, that would have, uh, would have taken place there. Uh, no matter how many times I show this photograph of the, the Wentworth Street Arch, there's also a church from Wentworth Street, even people who live in the East End and live there all their lives say to me, where is that? I've never seen that. It's very strange. Um, this is um, actually opposite the Toynbee Estate, um, which many of you know at the moment is being ripped apart and turned into fancy apartments, sadly. Um, this was uh, this is the only remaining artifact from Rothschild's four uh, percent industrial dwelling corporation buildings, um, which he built uh, just behind it, um, Charlotte, uh, 
buildings in the very first one, part of that massive drive of social housing, philanthropic social housing, which again is another interest in me. Uh, it interests me uh, photographically. I've photographed uh, quite a few of these ex extensively from the outside, not from the inside, unfortunately. Um, and um, Rothschild was a bit of a maverick. Maverick. You could apply to the Metropolitan Board of Works and actually buy land cheap off of them if they cleared it for social housing purposes. But he, he couldn't be bothered to wait, so he formed this investment company, offered people a 4% return on their investment, which actually in this day and age is not bad, um, and then uh, went ahead, cleared the land, and built, built the uh, built buildings. Uh, the IDC still exists today. This is actually probably one of my favorite IDC buildings where there was a massive Jewish community. This is uh, Stepney, uh, Stepney Green Court. Uh, built in 1896. Um, I love this picture for a reason. Uh, there's a fantastic book, which you can no longer get. Um, you, I got my copy from eight books called The Red Kiss of Stepney by uh, J. E. Connor and B. J. Critchley. Um, and they they wrote a history of these uh, East End companies, uh, these, the East End Dwelling Society, the IEC, and a couple of others, a couple of uh, Peabody, a few of those. Great little book you can get. Um, and they, the title of the book was The Red Cliffs of Stepney. And until I actually went down and photographed Stepney Green Court, I never really got the title. But then, of course, when I went in there, oh, yeah, I get it now, The Red Cliffs of Stepney. Um, and um, very large Jewish population in there. When I was actually photographing that, I, the, probably people at that can't see this, but there are cones all the way down the middle of the um, court there. That was actually the uh, air raid shelter, which they were, at that point, digging out and, and filling in. Kind of interesting. Um, this is one of the last IDC buildings. This is MacArthur House, which happens to be sat down next door to the Brady Street Cemetery, and by coincidence, the school I taught in as well. That's uh, only school. Um, and it's, uh, it's a fine piece of sort of close to arts and crafts, almost Edwardian architecture, still like Stepney Green Court, still uh, um, occupied today, still owned by the IDC. No longer uh, denominational, it's non-denominational, anybody can live there. Um, and uh, it's named after a, uh, one of, it's named after one of, Roth, I think it's Rothschild's uh, brother-in-law, uh, Joseph McCarter, who was uh, uh, a stockbroker and then used his fortune for philanthropic purposes for the rest of his life after he retired. Um, this is... Uh, again, one of those things which, again, I show people in presentations and they sort of say to me, uh, where is that? Um, this is on my travel waist. This is the King Edward VII drinking fountain. Now, in 1911, when the Jewish uh, street traders got together by subscription and paid for to put up this um, statue to the memory of Edward VII, who was a, a good friend to the Jewish community, um, the UK was going through this rather strange uh, turbulence surrounding immigration which sounds very, very familiar in this day and age. And they'd introduced something called the Aliens Acts, which were designed to try and reduce immigration to targets, maybe, I don't know. Um, and Jewish street traders wanted to point out, they, they wanted to use this to emphasize the importance of, you know, re-emphasize the importance of allowing immigration from Eastern Europe, and also to demonstrate their fealty to the to British society and to the Crown. It has some very beautiful uh, art around it. The cherubs all signify progress, so we have cherubs signifying education, uh, cloth here, the garment trade, um, 
steamships and then over here the newest technology in that, at that point, which is automotive technology. Um, some of you may have heard of uh, this. This is, uh, these are photographs of Rocha actually um, took, Rachel Kolsky, my co-author, of um, mother leavers uh, in um, the road always escapes me. I did actually write it down here. Uh, Underwood Road. Mother Levis was a very important maternity home for the Jewish community. A number of uh, very uh, number of very famous people were born there: Alma Kogan, Arnold Wesker, Lionel Bart, all um, all um, uh, born there. It's named after the uh, district uh, maternity nurse um, uh, who uh, Sarah Levy, who would go around and uh, prepare women prenatal. Um, for the birth which would then take place here. Actually founded by Lord Burstow, uh, or money from Lord Burstow, who at the time was the chairman of Shell Training. This is what it looks like today. It was pulled down, unfortunately, um, and then Peabody Estates actually rebuilt uh, apartments on it. There's a beautiful frieze that goes all the way around it, which explains the whole history of Mother Leaders. Um, but for more time, I would, uh, I would talk a bit more about it. Um, this is the Blue Plaque. I'm sure many of you have seen this as you walk past um, Aldgate uh, <coughs> East Station to Isaac Rosenberg. In fact, uh, I'm including it because um, this is very close to uh, the 100th anniversary, which is actually the year of the 100th anniversary of his death. Uh, Rosenberg was uh, part of a group of people called the Whitechapel Boys, a group of artists and um, writers um, that included people like Mock, uh, Gertler, and uh, David Bomberg, and Joseph Leftwich, um, and many others, um, who, whose education largely took place at the Whitechapel Library, which in its day was known to the population as um, the University of the Ghetto. It was, it was sometimes a little bit called the British Library Reading Room of the East. Um, very important to the population. It gave them access to uh, literature and, and fiction, non-fiction, which of course they couldn't afford to buy, but they could afford to read. I think there's a wonderful story about the Whitechapel Library of when, um, uh, was it Road to Wigan Pier? Was, or down out in London, Paris? I can't remember which one was actually published. They actually had to limit people to an hour of reading of the book. It was so desirable. Um, that people were lining up to actually read it. It's the only place, the Whitechapel Gallery, where Guernica was uh, exhibited um, prior to <coughs> movement back to Spain and New York. But uh, Rosenberg sadly lost his life on the Eastern Front, uh, sorry, Western Front. He never wanted to be in the army. Uh, he left behind him. His, his poetry is revered by Jean Moorcroft Wilson, who's, who's, who's probably the biggest authority on war, uh, first of all, war poets as being greater than that of Siegfried Sassoon and Robert Graves, which is kind of interesting. Uh, when we were writing our book, uh, Secret Whitechapel, Rachel and I wanted to include some photographs of David Kira's banana shop, which is in um, uh, Princess Street, not Princess Street, sorry, 48th Street. And um, we were very fortunate that uh, Stuart Kira, his son, actually contributed some photographs for us, and this is actually uh, Fournier Street at the height in, in the 1980s, um, at the height of when it was an extension really of Spitalfields Market. And in fact, this gentleman just standing over here is actually uh, David Kira in the photograph. Kira's were banana importers. Funnily enough, when I talked to Stuart 
uh, Kira, about this. He said that with the changing population um, uh, in the sort of 1980s, early 1990s, he had to start importing dates um, for the growing uh, Muslim population to uh, require dates to break their fast at the, uh, at the end uh, each day of Ramadan. Um, food has always been very important to the Jewish community, I can tell you that. Um, and uh, this this uh, is a slide, this, this is a couple of photographs I took in one of the few remaining uh, truly Jewish bakers, and that really the only truly remaining Jewish baker in the East End. I mean, there is there is the bake bake still. But uh, this is the family-run business, the uh, Rinkoff Bakery, in Erdary Place, uh, just, just on, off the Marlick Road. And um, I, I'm actually finishing on this, uh, these sets of photographs because they, they mean a lot to me. Uh, one of the reasons is I've never actually been into, it was great going into a functioning factory and actually photographing what they do. Um, and uh, I mean, in, in here we actually have the uh, collars that they, that they produce. These are not for ritual purposes, these are just basically for eating purposes, so they're round and not plated. Um, but uh, next to it, we've got uh, uh, Ray Rinkoff, who's the grandson, or maybe great-grandson, now I can't think about it, of the original founder. It's a, a business that's been passed down. Now his daughter is actually taking it over. And he's, uh, he's, he's shown to me the, the dough they make, uh, the holler athlete. And, and I remember him saying to me, you see, it has to be like silk. It has to feel like silk, which I thought was just a very evocative thing to say about any kind of um, I hope I, I don't know if I, I, I forgot to set my time, so I hope I haven't actually, I'm actually okay, but um, thank you very much for listening to me. Uh, this is my last slide. I very rarely allow people to take photographs of me, I know that sounds incredibly dang. Um, this is, this is my self-portrait, this was taken in uh, the Brady Street Cemetery. Um, I think I said to you I had to go back there for about two and a half years before it snowed during the winter. And what a change in our climate. Um, and uh, I just, I like the way my, uh, the stones in Brady Street really begin to uh, glow at sunset. It's a very, very, very beautiful thing to see actually. Uh, and I couldn't resist photographing myself against the stone. And actually I call this pho photograph, harking back to Brick Lane actually, I call this Umbra Summers. We are we are about the shadows. Um, as I say, thank you very much for listening to me. Um, I'm more than happy um, to take the, if I've raised any questions or indeed any corrections, because uh, I'm not fallible when it comes to dates and, uh, and so on. More than happy to take any questions uh, if, if anybody has any. Or have I stunned you all? In, and this is why you can do to my <laughs> students, right? You said stun them into silence. Actually, I will use the opportunity to just say I have bought a couple of books with me. Um, I have some copies of White Chapel and Fifty Buildings and uh, East End Jewish Cemeteries. Unfortunately, I completely sold out of Secret White Chapel, um, and indeed it's being reprinted at the moment. Although um, there are still some copies on, I, I know it's still available from Amazon. If anyone is interested, there are a tenner each, uh, and I'm <coughs> And I know somebody actually said to me in advance they bought one of my books, they wanted me to sign it. So more than happy to uh, sign any books. But um, thank you very much for your time. I hope. And that was Louis Burke at the 2018 East End Conference. We'd like to thank Louis Burke, Mark Ripper, Adam Wood, 
and Andrew Firth for making the release of this talk possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you'll find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper, East End history and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. Ripper.